Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. All right. Thank you, sir. Well, as I said, we're going we're gonna to claim one and one for the Texans. All right, all right. Back in the 20th century, um, there was a, a, a Senate, U.S. Senate chaplain. His name was Richard S. Halverson. And he used to challenge people with a, a, an, an, an image, kind of a word picture. I want to share that with you this morning. Speaking, and he was speaking at a time when it was more um, male-centered, so a little bit of it's been updated, but you'll get the picture. He says, you're going to meet an old man or woman Someday down the road, 10, 30, 50 years from now, waiting there for you, you'll be catching up with him or her. What kind of old man are you going to meet? He may be a seasoned, soft, gracious fellow, a gentleman who has grown old gracefully, surrounded by hosts of friends, friends who call him blessed because of what his life has meant to them. Or he may be a bitter disillusioned, dried-up old buzzard. That's his word. Without a good word for anyone, soured, friendless, alone. Then Halverson said, that old man or woman will be you. He'll be the composite of everything you do, say, and think, today and tomorrow. His mind will he see in a mold you have made by your beliefs. His heart will be turning out what you've been putting into it. Every little thought, every deed goes into this old man. Every day, in every way, you are becoming more and more like yourself. So who are you becoming? Who are you personally, individually, who are you becoming? The good news is that it's, it's never too late to change who you will be, but we have to work at it and be intentional. And, and if we think we're going to naturally arrive at where we'd like to be 10 or 30 or 50 years down the road, then we haven't taken the reality of sin in our lives very seriously. Every day, you and I are confronted by the natural inertia of sin in our lives that left alone is going to always bend us away from God's best. In a world that has always battled God's values and designs, I mean, it should be no surprise that, that we are not the first to deal with this. The Bible is full of examples and teachings. And the Apostle Peter's letter, first letter found in the Bible's New Testament near the end of the New Testament, helps us understand this and what it will take to become a man or woman that you'd like to be, that you want your grandkids to know, that you want people to look at you and say, that's the kind of person I've always wanted to be. And more importantly, that God wants you to be. And so it, it points to the importance of letting our faith and our, our, our beliefs 
guide how we live, guide our actions, versus just simply giving into the feeling of the moment. For Christ's followers, our, our ethics, our morality are not constantly changing. They are anchored ahead of time in Jesus Christ himself, in his life, in his teachings, in everything about him. And so this morning, we're going to continue our series on 1 Peter called Walk the Talk. Uh, and, and if this series speaks to you, if you've missed the first couple of weeks, we have audio podcasts available on our website, or you can go to our Facebook page and actually watch the message in, in video. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 13 this morning. If you're using a mobile device, use the, the Version Bible app and click on the live page. And if you have neither of those, as always, we provide notes in your bulletin for you to follow along with the scripture and places to, to take notes. As we saw last week, Peter opens his letter reminding his, his readers that, that through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, they have a living hope, much of what, like what we sang in this song just now, what I believe, that pr- this hope promises eternal salvation to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on in, in our lives and, and, and at the time. And so now, in setting that foundation, if you will, he turns to tell them, how to live that out in light of that living hope. So in verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, and Paul, Peter begins here with a very interesting word picture in the, in the original Greek language. It's, it's a phrase that probably a lot of us have heard. But what it literally is, is gird up your loins, L-O-I-N-S, Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, the picture here is of a guy, and this is from the art of manliness. Uh, not sure why, but you see a guy in a long tunic, a robe. It's difficult for them to move. If they need to defend, if they need to react suddenly, then they would basically hike up the tunic, hold it in front, wrap it around to the back, and either tie it in front or stuff it into their belt so that they were prepared, they could move forward, they could do whatever they needed to do. And this was, this was very familiar in the ancient world. This was something that every guy took for granted. To gird up your loins was, was a common phrase. It's, we've, we virtually never use a phrase like that today, but we might, today we might say roll up your sleeves or take off your coat. You know, how is it that we get ready to face what is ahead? Interestingly, Jesus actually used a similar image to this when he, when he, he called his followers to prepare for his return in Luke chapter 12. And, and perhaps Peter remembered that image that, that Jesus himself had used. And he's using it here, Peter is using it as, as that our minds need to be prepared for whatever comes. And yet, for whatever does come, he says, we need to be self-controlled. We, we don't need to be giving in always to the emotion of the moment, but focusing on Christ and what he's calling us to do and become. Peter is calling the Christ follower to be focused on God's plan, his purpose, that's not going to be fully completed, fully fulfilled until Christ returns and, and, and he is revealed to all. But our self-control is not anchored just in trying harder. I'm a, good, you know, I'm a good old American boy. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to the, the, you know, roll up my sleeves and, and work at it. Peter says it is grounded 
though, in God's grace, not in human effort. He says God's grace is what we need for whatever we face. He's always calling us to look beyond where we are, what we are experiencing, to Christ's return when our hope, when our faith in him will be fully vindicated by God. There are people around you who don't think your Christian faith, they don't understand it, they don't know why you bother with it, they may even make fun of you. And and Peter, all through here, is reminding us that, yes, we will have to put up with some of that, but we will one day be vindicated. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And at that point, they will discover that they made fun of you, and it was a big mistake. Now, you can't say that, but you know it, and so you live out that confidence that no matter what others say, what others do. Peter goes on to say, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Remember, this is a statement. He's writing this to Christians who've already committed their lives to Jesus Christ, and yet he knows that they, like us, who are Christians today, remember what it was like once upon a time when we weren't, whether that was only a few weeks ago or maybe decades ago. He calls uh, for obedience, even radical obedience, and that ought to be our natural response to following Christ as Lord. What does Lord mean? When we use the word Lord, when we say Savior who saves us from our sins and Lord, what it means is we are making him king of our lives. We are making him the master. And so if he is master, then we obey and It's the same thing he says that we would expect for children in obeying their parents. Peter encourages his readers to be obedient to Christ to help them overcome the worldly passions that that have so long driven them because they have committed their lives to Christ. But now, they before that, they didn't know any better, but now he says you do. And he's not saying that non-Christians are inherently evil, but that they do not realize they're being tempted and, and, and swayed down a slippery slope by evil. Paul says in Corinthians, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Guys, we got, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we need to remember that those who are not followers of Christ, there is supernatural warfare going on against them. And for those of you who, who do not believe, and especially if you struggle or it's hard to get over certain things, you need to know that according to the Bible, there is an enemy that is working against you to believe. It's not just simply that the facts don't line up. It is that there is a supernatural power at work. But now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, Peter reminds us that we have learned the truth. Yet old, old ways die hard. And so it takes this ongoing obedience to Christ in our lives to avoid slipping back into sinful habits and practices. And every single one of us who is a follower of Christ, if we're honest, knows that is so easy to happen. It requires us to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ every day. Every day, not just on Sunday mornings. Every day, throughout our day, empowered by his spirit to help us live for the future he has set before us. And this obedience to Christ, it marks us as being different from those around us. So that Peter tells them them and us that 
that we are called literally to live differently in our world today from the things that we see. That because the world says it's okay or, or, or it doesn't or is it is radically accepted, it doesn't mean that it's okay with God or it is good for us to go in that direction. In fact, Peter writes, verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now the word holy in the Hebrew language that's being translated, that was originally translated means separateness or withdrawal. And, and it typically means a divine quality, part of God's intrinsic nature, apart from a fallen world. By God's very nature as spirit, as love, as just, as all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, present everywhere at all times, God the Creator is unlike anything else in all of His creation. And so what does His creation do? We see it in Isaiah, we see it in Revelation. In Isaiah is the seraphim, a kind of angel, so to speak. We're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Repetition in the Bible, just, this is just kind of a, a, an FYI. Repetition in the Bible virtually always indicates added importance. If you go into the Psalms, you often find within a verse, they they're, they're call them couplets. One line says something, the next line says almost the same thing. It's a way of emphasis. And it's typically in twos. On occasion, you will see something in threes. And when that happens, it is saying, this is very, very significant that holiness is inherent in God's nature. And as God the Son, the same is true for Jesus. He lived differently from the world around. Yes, he ate food every day. He went to the bathroom every day. You know, he walked, he talked, he dealt with personality conflicts. He did all the things that human beings do. But he still lived differently. And what did it get him? crucified. That's an encouragement, isn't it? And yet Peter reminds his readers that the one who has always been holy calls his people to also be holy. And in fact, Peter reminds him that God made this a command to his people, the Jews, initially back in Leviticus, and nothing has changed some 1,500 years later as we come to the New Testament. Peter is quoting directly from Leviticus, to say what was a command back then for followers of God is still a command today for followers of God who have recognized him in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you then, it is still a command 2,000 years later to you and me. We can't be perfect, no. But we can be different by seeking to follow Jesus and live as he lived by his grace through the power of his spirit. And clearly, this isn't easy. I mean, I'm not trying to make this sound like, oh, it's a, it's a big deal. Because it always requires God's spirit to work in us, which is why just trying to be good, just trying to be moral on our own, ultimately never works. Some of you may have tried it for a while. I know I did. I thought I was being a Christian just by trying just by trying to be good, that that was somehow the definition of a Christian. But I was trying to be good 
in my own strength. And that was a fail. We are called to live differently by the power of God. And and Peter knew this firsthand because when it was on the line for him, remember, he denied Jesus three times. He'd been with him for three years. But when Jesus was taken into custody, three times Jesus said, I don't know him, never heard of him, don't know anything about him. And not until Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit could Peter truly begin to live differently, to begin to be holy. And all this was at huge cost to God, and it certainly cost Peter. And you better believe it cost us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. With your body. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we are held to a higher standard because we are not our own. We honor God by obeying him in our lifestyles, which sets us apart from the rest of the world that prefers to give in to emotions, give in to feelings when they cross with God's plan and purpose, sexuality, morality, integrity, ethics, all of these things are at stake today as people rationalize what seems right to them or what fits in with others. It always strikes me that the complaint in the Old Testament book of Judges that gets echoed throughout and finally is put very succinctly in words is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Man, that is, that is such an indictment. I think of that as an indictment against me. And maybe you do too, I don't know. But how often I am, I am pulled to do what I think, what I want, what feels good in the moment. See, the question becomes, what is the defining authority for our decision-making? What do you rest on? Where, where's your reason? What is it that justifies, not, not just a quick thought, but if you really think, sit down and think about it, what, where is it that grounds your decision-making, your morality? Is it popular vote? Is it, is it cultural trends? Is it the government or law or the courts or even just what you feel? Today, more than ever, folks tend to take a very relativistic approach to morality. We make decisions not based on some lasting ground of authority, but based on feelings of the moment or political correctness or, or what we want. But the consequences of that kind of life are so slippery. Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland was speaking in a dorm at the University of Vermont when a student told him, whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. If something works for you because you believe it, that's great. But no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. And so, as Moreland wrapped up his talk, he walked by the young man's room and went in and pulled his stereo, unplugged it from the wall, and started to walk out. And the guy said, hey, what are you doing? That's mine. Moreland said, you're not going to force on me the belief that it is wrong to steal your stereo, are you? 
Who, why would you say it is wrong? What, on what grounds is that? It's, it's, it's right for me, even if it's not right for you. He, he pointed out to that student that when it's convenient, people say they don't care about sexual morality or cheating on exams, but they become moral absolutists in a hurry when someone steals their things or violates their rights. There's a great danger today in this sense of, of relative morality. Because my very nature has been corrupted by sin. So my tendency to allow my morality to drift to where it benefits me is going to always be in play. And, and often I will not want to consider the long term. And that kind of drift has huge implications, as Moreland demonstrated. We need a foundation, something on which to base and ground our morality. And Peter is telling us that God is our foundation, the foundation of our ethics, the foundation of our morality, his very character and nature as holy serve as the basis for how you and I choose to live. We are to be holy because he's holy, which means we don't look to the culture or to our own desires to establish our life and morals. And we look to God, especially as he was revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're to live obediently to Christ. And, 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 but this is not just an empty command. Peter reminds his readers and us that we will be held accountable for our choices. He says in verse 17, since you call on the, a father, who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here, talking about in this world, in reverent fear. God, who, who Jesus himself told us is our heavenly Father, I mean, he sees all we do. He knows everything we do. He knows everything we think. And the Bible says he judges us with perfect justice, each one of us. We, we will be judged. We will stand before the judge. And we won't be able to hide it. We won't be able to say, I didn't know any better. And so Peter reminds us that we are to live differently, effectively, as strangers in the world around us that doesn't give a flip about how God cares. To live in reverent fear. See, he is our, our father. But we can't take him for granted or assume that our status as Christ followers somehow excuses sinful choices. People look around at Christians and they say, why would I want to be a Christian? You don't live any differently than I do. That is an, a direct indictment against our unwillingness to be holy. He is our father, but we can't take it for granted that he that we can, we're, we're forgiven that it's okay whether it was something we shouldn't have done or something we should have done that we didn't. And we understand that with our children. But in order to teach them the way our children go, sometimes we as parents have to command respect and obedience. Sometimes you have to say, this is it. And God, our Heavenly Father, does no less. In fact, He does this perfectly. 
And we will. All of us will have to account for our sins that we've carelessly committed. That doesn't mean that there isn't forgiveness. But at the same time, it also doesn't simply slough off our sins like they're no big deal. I, I, I sinned, but he's going to forgive me so I, I can go on. No, we ought to be mortified by it. it. It ought to affect us to the point where we say, God, help me, a sinner. Help me in this. And not just simply pass it off as something no big deal. God is holy, and he will not allow sin in his presence. So Peter, who denied Jesus, has felt the weight of sin in his own life. And it has grieved him so that out of love and concern for his readers, he reminds them to live in awe and even to a certain degree, healthy fear of God. We don't take him for granted. He reminds them of the high cost God, in fact, paid to redeem them, to redeem us. From our sin, verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life headed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He did nothing wrong, but he, had to, he died for our sins. As valuable as silver and gold were then and are today, they're not eternal. You didn't come in the world with silver or gold. You're not going out even with a bracelet, it ain't going to make it. Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, the full, perfect sacrifice for us all, he is eternal. Peter reminds his readers again that they were redeemed. And, and, and the picture here, when you see the word redeemed, it is this image of purchasing one who has been a slave so that they can be freed. And it's exactly what our story is, that we have all been in bondage to sin before receiving Christ into our lives. He redeemed us. It said earlier in Corinthians, you have been bought for a price. We are no longer our own. The life before ultimately is empty, apart from God's plan in Christ. But what's amazing is, Peter says, this wasn't a last-minute plan. This wasn't like, okay, I tried A plan, B plan, C plan. Finally, okay, Jesus, you're up. You're, you're, you're the next man standing. You go in for me. This had been his plan from the beginning, though, though it hadn't been obvious in spite of what the prophets had said. Peter says in 20, he, talking about Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. God always knew omnipotent, om omniscient. He, know, he knew we would sin. He knew we would not respond to the prophets. He knew from the, before he even created Adam and Eve that he would be sending his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of our faith, the perfect revelation of God's own self who was revealed particularly in his death and resurrection for, for us, for our salvation. It's God's doing, Peter tells us. 21, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. He says our faith, our hope in God is justified and, and, and will be vindicated in that last day when Jesus returns. So how you and I live now, today, matters as a reflection of our faith, of what we truly believe. You can tell me you believe one thing, you know, there's an old saying, if you want to prove what you really believe, ask somebody for their, their checkbook or their credit card statement and their calendar. Because you can say, we can say all kinds of things, but it's what we do that proves what we truly 
believe. And Peter indicates, though, there's still another aspect of this life that's bound to Christ, and it's love. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Our faith in Christ cleanses us from sin that distorts all relationships with God, with those around us. And so now as he works in our lives, our relationships should show that there's a genuine sense of community, of caring for one another. The church is at its best when we love and care for one another, not when we just simply say, I'm just here for a message, or I'm just here to be here. That we're a community of faith, so that no matter how we experience the world around us, we have a family of faith. Even if the families we were born into do not show us unconditional love. Our actions with our babies this morning show the role of the church family. We don't We could do that off to the side. We could do that sometime when you weren't here. Why do we do that when you're here? Because that's what God's family does. We we care, we're concerned about one another. And when someone has something new in their life that is, for every parent you know, is a huge, huge investment of time and energy to encourage these couples, these families, that we're with them in the midst of all this. Peter goes on, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Our lives, our love, our actions should always grow out of our relationship with Christ, through whom those of us who are followers, who have made that decision, are born again. Our actions should never be based on whim, on fad, on what we want, on on. on those that love this world more than they care about Christ, that it should be through obedience to the unchanging word of God. And Peter understands that the ways of this world seem, seem good for a time, but, but they ultimately fade. And he quotes then from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 as his proof. He says, verse 24, 4, all men are, this is the quote, all men are, excuse me, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. There's a good thing there, but the grass withers and the flowers fall. It doesn't last. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. And all through this passage this morning, Peter's been calling us to live lives that are different from the world around us. Holy, that's the word, holy, as a reflection of our faith in Christ. It's not that everything about the world around us is bad, though some of it is, but that the things of this world can never last. They fade, they fall, they wither. They're not eternal. And some of the things of this world that seem so enticing can be so destructive. And so we need God's word to help us discern what matters What really lasts forever? What is approved by God and will be vindicated when Jesus returns? I mean, Peter, I think he's encouraging us that there are all these reasons to live by faith, to be holy and and live as Jesus lived, but, 
But as much as anything, it's because every other way we might choose fades and withers. Peter doesn't want us settling for the short-term gains in our lives that will disappoint us in the, in the long run. And in fact, we'll be judged by God someday as harmful or hurtful. Now, I know we're always tempted to go along with the crowd, to do it because others are doing it, because it, it's what they do, or they're not getting caught. We don't want to be different. We don't want people to, to whisper about us in our community, in our family, in our schools. Because at least in the short time, being different gets us noticed and gets us a lot of times picked on. But when we give in to the world's values, we blend in, we fit, and we have sold our birthright. The community of faith around us suffers too, for the lack of love we could be sharing, for the witness that as we fit in with the world and we let people know that we go to church, our witness is destroying, in many cases, the witness of others. To walk the talk is not easy. Never. But it mirrors the eternity that you and I were created for that Jesus died for, that we might have life, to have it abundantly. So I go back to our opening story. What kind of man or woman do you want to be 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now? On your notes, there's a place for you to write that for yourself. You ought to, we ought to think about that. You ought to think about that. Do you want to be the best person you can be by the grace of God because you have sought Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, as guide? Or do you want to settle for an unremarkable drivel that keeps you socially safe but eternally bankrupt? I want to remind you, living for Christ today is countercultural. It is. It goes against the grain in so many ways as he calls us to be holy, to be different from the world around us. He calls us to live lives of, of moral, ethical living that, that are not rooted in our feelings or our desires, but that are rooted, in fact, that are grounded in the very character of God himself and revealed to us through his word, the Bible, that he calls us to, to walk the talk. If you're a Christ follower, you were born again for this. And if you're not a Christ follower, you need to decide if the faddish ways of this world are going to ever offer you the map you are looking for to lead the kind of life that you will ultimately be proud of in a future where, according to God's word, you and I will meet Jesus face to face and account for our choices. With Christ, we have a new way of life that, yeah, at times it is at odds with the world around us, which it itself often seeks very self-serving gains that only satisfy for a while. 
But Christ ultimately leads us to significance that embraces joy-filled eternal values. Life to the full. A new way of life. Let's pray. Gracious God, it's so easy to get caught up in stuff today, to look at the values of the world, to appreciate them, to want them, and, and, and not that all of them are bad or evil, but there's a slippery slope in there, God. If we don't have a foundation, a place to ground our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, you tell us that that ground is you as revealed in Jesus Christ and can be known through your word, the Bible today. There are things in the Bible, Father, that that talk about ways to live that sometimes we just don't like. But I pray that you will help us Act in faith, walk the talk, live this new way of life, trust, believe, and experience your eternal best now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to talk with our prayer team members? They'll be down here. Otherwise, God bless you. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.